Well, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us online this morning. Uh, though we are apart uh, and not in the church building together, we remain the church. And I'm so thankful that we get to worship together through these online interactions. So thank you for joining us today online. I've been encouraged by stories of those who have found us online and who have began to spend time together with us online. So we're glad you're joining us this morning. We want to ask the Lord to bless our time, so let me pray for us together. Lord God, we're so thankful that you continue to work, uh, even in a time that is difficult and a time that is strange. We're thankful that your work still goes on, that your kingdom is still advancing. And so God, we pray that you would be glorified in our time together today as we worship. Uh, Lord, as we hear from your word, I pray that you would be glorified in these things. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together. This is the Lion and the Lamb. Let's worship the Lord together. He's coming on the clouds. Kingdom, kingdoms will bow down. And every chain will break as broken hearts declare His praise. God is alive, the light of Judah is 
The reading today is in 1 John 2, 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Reagan. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, Dean. Well, hey, church. Thanks for joining us again online. Uh, and we do have a couple of staff in the room, so hello to you all. Great to, great to be with you this morning. A Redemption Church is one church in nine local congregations throughout Arizona we're gospel-centered and outward-focused and believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Let me just say at the start, as your pastor, I just want to thank you all for working so hard to stay connected during this time. You've been faithful to reach out and say you're praying for us and with us as we are with you as well. Because the needs in our church continue. We have people in our church family who need support and love and care, and you've all been so faithful for that so um, you've also stayed faithful in your giving so we just want to thank you for that supporting the staff and the work that our church does in the city and to our church family as well you've been faithful to continue that so thank you for that as well we are in the book of first john we're on week two of a six-week series going through this really amazing letter and the more i've studied it the more i've seen how amazing it is last week we learned about the book itself and the author who is John, uh, that's not so hard to figure out, and what it looks like to walk in the light versus walking in 
the darkness. And today we're going to be reading verses 3 through 17 of chapter 2. And so we've got a lot to cover. So let me pray and then we'll get into the word. God, we pray that your word would be what shines today in this service. God, that your word would convict and bring change, bring fruit by your Holy Spirit, that you'd be glorified in all of it, and that we, God, sinners, would be humbled in the light of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's get into it. We're going to start with verse 3, and we're going to read through the first part of verse 5. Verse 3 of chapter 2 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. But whoever says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. We'll pause right there. So according to John, how do we know if we've come to know, to really know God? It's if we keep his commandments. Well, all the commandments? Because there's a lot in here. Well, maybe, but, you know, I'm not going to give you that answer just yet. So you have to hold on. I do want you to hold on to that very last word we read, though, in verse 5, that the love of God is perfected. Hang on to that word, because already I'm going to take a rabbit trail here. I'm going to take a brief little jaunt down a little side trail. So I want to talk about this word to know. The word to know could also be to learn, to be familiar with, to understand. It's used a lot in this book. In fact, in just our verses today, it's used seven times. I think God wants us to know something. Or he's telling you and I that we can know something. Now, most commentators think that this is where John begins to speak against an early movement called Gnosticism. Now, it's hard to sum up entire movements briefly, but basically it's an emphasis on what can be known, that even salvation comes through knowledge alone. They claim to have a new gnosis, a new knowledge. And therefore, we don't need to know God because we've gone around him. We found another way in. And so we know the way. We don't need to keep to God's paths. And jumping ahead a bit into verses 7 and 8, if you look there now in chapter 2, you see the language where it's talking about Old Testaments and New Testaments. Now, most people think that the reason John wrote those is that he's reminding people that what he's saying is not a new revelation. It's, in fact, old. It's been from the beginning. But there's nothing new here. While at the same time, Jesus made this old commandment new again, that he was the light to the nations that the people of Israel were always supposed to be. Now, this Gnostic movement has clear links to a much later movement called modernism or modernity. We talked about this very briefly last week. They, the, in that movement, they value the pursuit of knowledge at all costs, that our light in some ways becomes the scientific method in this movement, that salvation at least socially, is within our grasp. If we could just know enough, the world would be okay. Now, this movement began back in, in, in the Enlightenment or around there, and look what we've learned since then. The knowledge is amazing, what we've learned. But socially, it hasn't saved us. There are still problems, big problems. And so that alone can't be the right answer. The knowledge alone wasn't it. And to be clear, that kind of thinking is 
is not in alignment with scripture, the Apostle Paul even goes as far as to say the only thing worth knowing is Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says that in 1 Corinthians 2. Now, many cultural scholars would say we've moved beyond that thinking into post-modernity. Information is great, but doesn't take us far enough. In fact, you know what? Nothing can be known. And since nothing can be known, let's eat, let's drink, let's be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's all about what I can experience in this life. As long as I'm not harming anyone, I'll sleep with who I want. I'll try anything once. My vacation budget needs to be the largest part of my budget because I want to take three extended vacations a year. I want a job that includes travel, or at least while I'm at my desk, I'll be planning those trips. I got to see the world before I get too old. I got to experience everything because what else is there in life? And now here comes this pastor, these Bible verses saying that the main thing we ought to worry about is whether or not I follow the commandments of God Womp womp. Now, I hope to be able to change your mind on that, or at least give you something else to think about, something else to consider. See, I think what John's doing here in this text and in the text to follow is giving us a test. He's giving us a diagnostic test. And now testing helps us understand the problem. Mechanics do it. Scientists and doctors, they all use diagnostic tests to determine what the real issue is, and then that tells them what the right course of action would be. Now, there are lots of tests, and what's often needed is expertise to know what the right test is. When I was a kid, around 10 or 11, I had symptoms that there was a problem going on, that something wasn't quite right. It started in my legs, actually. I couldn't get them to do quite what I wanted them to do, but, you know, kids are... Kids are awkward and clumsy. Maybe it was just that. And then I started having pain in my neck. It was pretty severe and mostly at night, actually. But, you know, people get pinched nerves and, you know, muscles get torn and things like that. Maybe that's what it was. And I had restless leg syndrome, which is, is no fun at all. But I needed the right test to know the real problem. Anything else was just guessing based on the symptoms, right? So a chiropractor couldn't fix it. Essential oils, although they're great, couldn't fix that either. Even leg surgery wouldn't help with the symptoms in the leg. The only way to know, the right way to fix it, was to have the right test. And MRI was the right test at that time, which told me I had a cervical tumor. It was benign, but it was um, pressing against my spinal cord, causing those issues in the legs. And now that started me down a path toward the right solution which leads into a much longer story than I can get into here. Um, but we can get coffee or lunch today, and I'll, I'd love to tell you, I've got some really good stories, hospital stories of a very drugged up Tyler saying very funny things to nurses and doctors. But the point is this, John gives us the first of many tests to give a right diagnosis to help us see the real problem. And the first test was how well we keep the commandments. He gives us his next test. Look at the next part of verse 5 and into verse 6. By this we may know, here's another test, that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pause there. So the thing we need to know is whether or not we're really in him, in Christ. 
And so what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, this is one of the beautiful things of, of commentators in the past. They all mean sum up a really, um, really difficult and really lengthy conversation into a, uh, a smaller conversation here. I'm, I'll let John Stott sum it up for us. The expressions in Christ, in the Lord, in him, occur 164 times in the letters of Paul alone and are indispensable to an understanding of the New Testament. To be in Christ does not mean to be inside Christ as tools are in a box or clothes in a closet, but to be organically united to Christ as limb is in the body or a branch is in the tree. It is this personal relationship with Christ that is the distinctive mark of his authentic followers. To be in Christ means simply to be a follower of Jesus. So he's saying, he's talking about salvation here. The, walking like he walked is how we know we're a Christian. We do what he did, and we do it how he did it. Now, obviously, we can't replicate everything Jesus did. We can't replicate his saving work on the cross. But like the book of Matthew says, we can pick up our cross daily and follow him. So how did Jesus walk? There's so much we could say here about this. And we recently did a series through the Gospels using a book by a guy named Paul Miller called Love Walked Among Us. And we use that book as our guide through the Gospels. Now, you can find that series on our website or, or go pick up the book yourself. But what we see in there, I'm just going to pull a couple of things. What we see, Jesus was never really in a hurry. So right away, ask, does our pace match his pace he's not still he is on the move but he's not in a hurry he rested he trusted in fact he was always trusting god he abided in god we are to abide in him abiding to jesus as a grape vine abides into a branch bearing its fruit jesus was willing to be inconvenienced for others and he considered those moments a joy, a, a moment to serve, to see another person. We know he wasn't afraid to speak up in the face of injustice and wrong done to others. We saw last week, he was and is an advocate. Do we do the same? Are we an advocate to others who need that? We know he was quick to absorb injustice done to him silently. He spoke very little on the way to the cross. He had faith in God at all times. He obeyed perfectly. Why? Because he loved God. He entered into suffering. Why? Because he loved us, loves us. Where are we being called to enter into suffering? And are we doing it out of love? There are people in our church experiencing hard, hard suffering. When you see it, church, don't look away. Enter in however you can. Does our life look like his? Patterning the life of Jesus reminds us, is evidence of the fact that we are in him. Jesus' life was love embodied. Love, in fact, is at the very center of what's being talked about here. So don't be thrown off by the testing or commandments language here. Jesus loved, so we love. That's it. But we have a lot more verses to get through, so that's not it. But you know what I mean. So we covered verses 7 through 8 very briefly. 
Remember that Old and New Testaments thing. So let's jump into verses 9 through 11 and read those now. Chapter 2, 9 through 11. Air conditioning turned many pages. Okay, here we are. Verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness had blinded his eyes. Allison DeSarfino, one of our staff, said this as we were studying this passage, a small group of us, a couple weeks ago. She said this, Loving the light of God makes you hate sin. Loving the darkness makes you hate people. She's talking about what John is beginning to connect here in this passage. He's expanding the ideas of light and darkness talked about last week. He's connecting light and love And he's connecting darkness and hate. So saying, I'm in the light while hating your brother, means, is evidence of, actually walking in darkness. Now brother here refers to fellow Christians, fellow believers. Remember, most here would say he's speaking directly against the early Gnostic movement, which was turning Christian against Christian. And in Matthew 5, though, Jesus says we ought to not just love our fellow believers, but love even our enemies. So the answer is we love all. We shouldn't hate any. Love is unconditional to those in Christ. But you say, but loving people is hard. It's hard. Some people are really hard to love. It's much easier to hate people sometimes. I get it, but remember, we have to walk as Jesus walked. To hate another person is to walk anti the way that Jesus walked. It's to keep distance emotionally, physically, and then build a rationale on why that space exists. To be too busy or or unwilling to be inconvenienced and explain that away. It's to cause division in the church or outside the church. On issues unrelated to the gospel message of Jesus, to do that is to hate your brother or sister. Look at verse 10. Love doesn't create a reason for stumbling, but hate does. Hatred can be what you do, things, that, uh, things of commission, and what you, left, what you leave undone, sins of omission, remaining silent in the face of suffering of the others around you. You see it, but you don't engage. Maybe even look the other way. The Bible would say that's hatred. You see, we're quick to lash out when hatred is displayed against us, but we're quick to dole it out to others. Hatred is action taken or not taken to the detriment of other image bearers of God. And it's always anti-gospel. There is, however, we have to remember, a proper place for hate. It's sin. In yourself first, and in systems and structures opposed to the work of God in the world. Hate can be a tool, a weapon, and we must wield it carefully. 
There seems to be, church, no middle ground in John's writing. It's, it's darkness or light. It's love or hate. And the heart is the center of it all. This is what he's getting at. Any action or inaction displays the heart. To hate is to keep at arm's length, but love enters in. Jesus' love, he entered in, into our suffering, into our mess. And there's no reason to do that other than love. And so we ought to walk as he walked. We obey like he obeyed. We obey his commandments. But which commandments? Because there's a lot. Have you seen the Old Testament? There's a lot of commandments in here. Remember that in the Gospels, Jesus gives us a shortcut to all the commandments. He sums them all up for us in a nice, tidy package with a little bow on top. Let's read Mark 12, 28. Follow with me here. One of the scribes, this is an expert in the scriptures, asked Jesus, Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, he would have heard that and known exactly where Jesus was going. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, this was prayed multiple times a day by God's people. Jesus goes on, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, with that framework, if we place that on top of what we've read so far, look with me. If you go back, you can sum things up into two main parts. You could say verses 3 through 7 describe how we know if we love God. Now, verses 8 through 11, could just, you could say, describe how we know if we love others. Loving God, loving others. Is it starting to sound familiar? I literally jumped out of my chair when I realized this in, in studying this. This is the framework that John's using to unpack his argument. So the test of love is obedience to the great commandment. It's obedience and conformity to love God with everything you have and to love your neighbor like you love yourself. Now remember, an effective diagnostic test will clearly present the problem and then make a path forward in how to solve it. So to say obedience is the test of love is to say that the way we know we love God is if we walk in his commandments. If we don't have that, then we love something else. So who, church, or what do you love? Because this is how we know if we truly love God. Now John is so excited here that he writes a poem as he continues. Now notice in your Bible, 12 through 14, notice how the formatting is a little bit different here. This is a clue, this is a reminder that this section is, is different. So remember, when we read biblical poetry, we've got to read it differently than letters. So we slow down, we read it carefully, even more than once if you can. What's important with this poem is keep the big picture in mind. I'm gonna give you that in just a second. So don't let images or, or comparisons drag you in too much. Don't read into those too much. What you should also know is that this poem talks to the dudes a lot. So women aren't specifically mentioned, but listen, you are included. This was simply a cultural way at the time of addressing the whole family. 
while still elevating the leadership role of fathers and husbands in the home. But it is speaking to the whole family. Now, here's the big picture we ought to keep in mind as we read this. What we're going to read here is a joyful and exuberant summation of gospel realities enjoyed by obedience to God's commandments. This is what happens when we love God and love others. This is what we get. Let's read verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, clearly, he's speaking to specific groups of people here, but I think he's doing it through the lens of poetically Christian maturity. Children of the faith receive forgiveness. This is foundational to belief in God. We receive forgiveness. They also are told, Christians, uh, that, that children, that they know God. So even children can know God. This is foundational. Children, as in the, the early stages of our faith, but also foundational that we return back to, not move away from. Young men of the faith enjoy victory over the evil one. That the temptations of youth, the trials of young faith, can be overcome by those who keep in God's commandments. Fathers, now I think he's being nice here by saying fathers because it sounds better than saying, hey old guys, listen. No, fathers of the faith enjoy fellowship with God. And it says they also know God. Now maturity in the faith, being a father of the faith, enjoys a deeper fellowship, a deeper knowing of God, certainly, than children. That comes with maturity in Christ. But it's also had by children of the faith. Knowing God, receiving forgiveness, victory over evil, true fellowship with God, maturity in Christ, true and complete joy, these are some of the things we can expect from a life of obedience. And now John shifts, encouraging us to not love the world, to not love the world in our last few verses. And so we ask, why? Why can't we love the world and God? Can't we have both? Well, very quickly, when God loves the world, he purifies it. He died for it so that we can live separate from it. Because when we love the world, church, we get drawn into it. Because of sin, it shapes us into its image, not the other way around. When we love the world, it changes us. When God loves, the world changes. Now, we got to know what we're talking about when we say the world here. The world here means the values and systems and structures of the world that are in opposition to God. And these verses are called towards separatism from that world. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians create a little bubble that we can live within, fully separate with just ourselves, and avoid all the people. Remember... Jesus entered into the world. And so John gives us a short list of things to be wary of that we may be drawn into as far as the ways of the world go. So let's read verses 15 through 17. John says, 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Right away, I want us to know that these terms, although they sound negative here, are actually neutral terms originally. They all have redemptive qualities to them, but they they do have a proper place, but they're often um, twisted by sin. And that twisting is evidenced in the world. So first on the list is kind of a two-for-one, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. This is certainly speaking of our human nature, human desires, our old self, bringing to attention the ways that those are manipulated and, and twisted and even encouraged in that broken form in the world. So be wise of those things. And the pride of life, that's such an interesting term. Most commentators would land somewhere in this range that they're speaking of things that we're proud of in our lives, boasting in one's possessions or your virtues, right? Frank's talked about that many times, virtue signaling, taking pride in those things first. It could also be thought of as boasting in in one's lifestyle as well. The vacations, the car, the home, as if those are a sign of God's favor or a sign of your own strength or your own value. I want to see the Instagram post that boasts on pride of life in Christ. The caption, I once was dead in my trespasses and sin. Darkness blinded me. I was lost, but now I'm found, washed clean, given a new life in Christ, and now I'm following him. Quick, somebody make that Instagram post. It's going to get like three likes. You've got to tag me too. Church, these desires, along with the world, are passing away, like it said at the end of 17. The world and its systems, they seem a little less permanent now than they did six months ago, right? The appearance of permanence in the world, church, is deceptive. We're realizing this more and more. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And there goes this death and sin stuff again. This pastor is on it. But look, it's in here. It's in the text. Remember, church, our future hope is in Christ's consummation of the world, not its continuation, at least not as it is now. We must obey We must realign. We must walk as Jesus walked. Now, I think it's okay here to ask, why? Why should I change? Why should I care? Well, because one, this is no joke. We're going to be judged by this test. Now, we must at times take a hard look at our lives. And not everyone who comes to church is saved. That's not how it works. Remember, the scariest words in the Bible are, Matthew 7, 21, when Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But Lord, look at all my good works. I did it for you. I was a good person for you. But Jesus says, but I never knew you. You never loved me. But we can know that God loves us. We've seen the evidence of where his love lies. He has passed the test. He was obedient perfectly to the Father, to the cross, to his own death, knowing fully what was coming. And he did that because of love, so that we can love. Jesus' words in John 15 seem appropriate here. Verses 11 through 14. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love, this is the evidence right here, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. The cross stands as the evidence of the love of Christ. We know what he loved. Church, what do you love most? And back to our question of why. Why should I consider deeply these things? Well, besides the fact that there's a reckoning coming, and there is, we find a compelling answer back in verse 5 of our text today. You can look there now. What does John say happens when we do keep his commandments? In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. Perfected. We skimmed over this earlier, but let's hang there now for a second. You could easily translate that word there, accomplished. Consider that for a moment. When we believe, when we love, when we obey the command of God to love, the work of Jesus is accomplished. His love, his word is accomplished in our obedience. And so our disobedience, our walking in the darkness makes the work of Christ incomplete for us. So that's why we obey. To escape judgment, yes, but to accomplish the perfect work of Jesus on the cross for us and for the world. To obey is to love, and to love is to obey. This is what God asks of you. Love him with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, as you're speaking now to our hearts of ways that we have fallen short, let us remember from what we learned last week that what we receive from you in those moments, God, is, is grace, is advocacy, is the propitiation for our sin, the cleansing and the, uh, the righteousness giving. So God, we confess that we have fallen short of your great commandment. But we thank you at the same time that Jesus, you did not. You, you perfectly loved God with everything. And you perfectly loved your neighbor as yourself. So we thank you for that, God. And, and we, we praise you for the forgiveness that you offer. In light of that, God, help us to uh, help wash us clean, God, and help us to walk in, in new life and in new obedience to you. God, this isn't a, a works-based salvation, but purely love and grace-based. And yet, at the same time, God, you call us to obedience. So, God, let our lives shine in obedience 
of your command, which, as you said, was to love, to love you and to love others. So we thank you for this message today. We pray that, God, that you would bear it to, to bring fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, church, this is what we do next. In the light of the, the good news, the gospel good news for us, we respond. And we do that normally as part of our Sunday gatherings uh, in times of prayer. This is where we remember to give, and this is when we receive communion. And so we realize many of you are at home doing this now. You might consider during this time praying as a family, as a community, um, as individuals. Now, you can give online. The offering boxes are normally here, but, but the giving online option is still there. And now communion. This is a, a way that we respond as well. So the good news is you don't have to deal with these finicky cups if you're taking communion at home. What you could do right now, if you have the elements prepared, go ahead and receive the bread and the, the juice or the wine. Um, if you don't have those prepared, the beauty of online watching is pause it, go get those ready and come back and then join in with us. So while we sing, pray, contemplate, receive communion. Remember, in this season, it's important to reach out. Let us know how you're doing so we hope to hear from you soon. But church, let's go ahead and respond now.
benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.